0: This
1: is the Providing Value Podcast. People are moving back into cities across the globe at an an incredible rate at this time. Mm -hmm. Somewhere just north of 50% of people live in cities in the globe right now. It's supposed to be 67% by
0: 2050. Hey, I'm Zach Doris, and you're listening to the Providing Value Podcast, a show that features the numbers to know and the perspectives that matter in the commercial real estate market of greater Nashville, Tennessee. As a commercial real estate appraiser and lifelong Nashvilleian, I provide you the same insight and tools that I have discovered talking with some of the most trusted voices in our industry. Join me today as I speak with Mark Deutschman of the City Living Group about Nashville's urban residential resurgence, the history of 12th South, and how to pick up the pieces in the aftermath of the Nashville tornado. Hi and welcome to the Providing Value Podcast. My name is Zach Doris. I'm your host today and I'm here with Mark Deutschman of Village Real Estate. And uh, Mark, welcome. Well, thanks for having me, Zach. Uh, So glad you're here. As always, glad that you said yes yes to this. You've always been a very helpful uh, market participant to us in the commercial real estate world doing appraisals. And so Always hearing your voice and and hearing your take on things is something I wanted to bring out. Mark has been in the real estate industry since 1986. He founded Village in 1996 and core development in 2003 and the City Living Group in 2005. Village grew to employ over 350 agents and staff during Mark's ownership. And in 2019, Mark sold Village and now serves as chair emeritus. That's just the big flyover, Mark, but I want to hear more detail. Whoa. Tell us about your history here. Tell us about, you You are really first and foremost one of the residential guys that is here on this podcast. We've interviewed a lot of uh, commercial real estate market participants, but you're one of the first guys who started out on the residential side. And so talk to us about that, talk to us about your history here in Nashville, and how you've gotten to where you are today.
1: When I arrived in Nashville in 1986, I ended up landing in Hillsborough Village. I have a friend who I'd met out west. Um, I came to Nashville in 86 without a real estate license. I had a marine zoology degree at the time. And I never left. Um, I ended up working downtown because my friend had an office in St. Cloud Corner at the corner of Fifth and Church. And I remember walking downtown and just feeling that Nashville really was a hollow shell, Hmm. and it certainly is a hollow shell of what it is today. Mm -hmm. It felt almost cold, like there was wind blowing through the city, and you'd have 48,000 people at the time coming in and working downtown, but then it would just end at the end of the day, and everybody would go back to the suburbs. Mm -hmm. Um, I got involved in Hillsborough Village because my friend Joel was uh, involved in a streetscape committee, neighborhood relations with Vanderbilt University. Uh, Hillsborough Village at the time had just pushed back on Vanderbilt and decided that Vanderbilt needed to stop expanding their boundaries. And Mm. they're reforming their neighborhood commercial district. They were concerning what they can do to become a good, vibrant neighborhood commercial district um, in the future. And I got involved just to do something. I got a real estate license because my friend had some assets and I thought I might help him sell them. But when people asked me what I did... I said, well, I sell real estate within a one-mile radius of Hillsborough Village. So it was my first sort of unique selling proposition the first time I went out as a realtor, and the strategy worked. Yeah. So soon I was selling 27 homes and 43 homes, 62 homes. And you know people would say to me, that's all you do? And I said, yes, but I know that Vanderbilt wants to bring their employees back to Back to campus, and I know that the Music Row Eccentrics are starting to like this Belmont Hillsboro neighborhood. And I know which houses are coming on the market. So if you know somebody who wants to be near Hillsboro Village, I'm your guy.
0: Yeah. And so this was in the late 80s, and you basically branded yourself with a one mile radius. Yes,
1: yeah, so that was my first branding effort.
0: Yeah. And, it, and like you said, it worked. Mm-hmm. So how did that traverse into as you grew in this market? Now, obviously, you're not only a part of Hillsborough Village, although we are actually sitting right now in your office building in Hillsborough Village, kind of your your home stance here. But you've done so much more in the history of this city in the last 30 years. Tell us about how that grew into where you are now and kind of what's happened since then.
1: So there was just an evolution, a thought evolution for me, where I started seeing how doing community work, could add value. And then you combine it with sales and marketing and trying to help people move back to urban neighborhoods, you know, to convince people that that might be a good idea to take the boards off the windows and the bars off and come back in and build community. And then I could see how even using sort of fun things, I don't know if you know it or not, but I was a juggler Mm -hmm. when I came to Nashville Mm -hmm. and I was quite a very good juggler. I was, you know, five, six, seven balls and One of my first customers had been, uh, she had been a professor at Stanford University. She came to town, and I realized she was an excellent juggler. And in 1987, 88, we started the Nashville Juggling Club. But that said, I would bring that back and help with the Halloween festivals in Hillsborough Mm -hmm. Village, use it as a tool to attract people to open houses. And even the fun side and the creative side could express itself in real estate and community and bring people together.
0: Yeah to drop this real quick. You you wrote a book, The One Mile Radius. Drop it. I like the term. Yeah, that's right. Got We're going to, gonna to it drop up. it in. Yeah. And I did get a chance to read that book. It's a fantastic read to, to our listeners if you haven't, you know, picked that up yet. Uh, we'll make a, a link to it available in our comments. But, I, I remember reading of, of your history and how that worked and that you were a juggler. I saw those pictures. They were fantastic, like late 80s juggling downtown Franklin at some of the parades and that <laughs> sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Really fun to see that kind of, hey, we're going to bring in a community aspect. We're going to bring in a fun aspect to selling real estate. How did that develop into a lot more uh, when you started the um, Started in 1996, your own brokerage?
1: Yeah, I think even before that, um, I moved over to 12th Avenue South. Mm -hmm. So it was right at the edge of my Hillsborough Village one mile radius. And I joined a company called Renaissance, a real estate company. They're based in East Nashville on Woodland Street. Um, I was their South Nashville agent. And as part of my territory, I took 12th South or 12th Avenue South at the time. But I could really now see from working in hillsborough village that the neighborhood was progressively valued as you moved from east to west so if i was on the west side of 21st avenue south the values were 20% higher than on the east side of 21st avenue south hmm. bizarre mm-hmm. even though the stock of houses on this side is fantastic mm-hmm. if you cross belmont boulevard it dropped another 20% mm-hmm. and if you try, if you went across 12 south it just dropped into you know the prices in Hillsborough Village back then were between 60 and 110,000 very high yeah <laughs> but on the other side of 12 South you could find houses for 30, 40, 50,000 because many of them were boarded up and vacant and didn't have any users so i could see that the the pattern of urbanization would probably move from west to east And what was happening in Hillsborough Village might be something that we can do with another neighborhood commercial district, the 12th Avenue South District. Mm -hmm. So in the mid-90s and early 90s, um, I ended up uh, asking MDHA, the Metropolitan Housing Development Authority, Authority, and my friend Phil Ryan, if they would help us think through another neighborhood commercial district. I was starting to feel like people wanted walkability mm-hmm. and that there was an interest in some solidification of community. Mm-hmm. And when MDHA brought all the merchants together that were on the street, remember that it was about 50% vacant at the time. Right, I remember and that. And pulled in the Sunnyside neighbors, and the Belmont Hillsborough neighbors, and the Breeze Hill neighbors, and the Montrose Alliance. All the neighbors said that what they wanted on that street was better sidewalks, mm. better lights, um, they wanted the traffic to mm-hmm. slow down and stop and shop. Mm-hmm. And they wanted more merchants who cared and owned their places. So that was revealing. You know, It was interesting to see what the community wanted for itself. Joel and I ended up starting a little partnership called 1221 Partners. Mm-hmm. And we ended up uh, buying 11 properties on 12th Avenue South, not to own them, but to try to see if we could flip them to merchant owners. Mm-hmm. So we found... One person, her name was Whitney Ferre. She bought the Creative Fitness Center building. I had bought it for eighty thousand dollars. She bought it for eighty thousand one dollar. We ended up. Flipping. You made a one dollar profit. I don't think she ever gave me the dollar. but <laughs> I tried. That's right. Um, we ended up finding Monica Holmes. She started the Clean Play Club. We we ended up putting in merchants who started to reinforce the strength of a, a, a merchant um, group, and you started seeing some pride of ownership. You know, pride of Um, doing business with the community, started seeing the walkable factor happen. But we also did a master plan for the street. And one of the cool things that we talked about was a uh, road diet, where instead of having a two-lane street coming through 12 South, we shrank it to one lane with wider sidewalks and parallel parking so that it made it a better place for pedestrians to stop and shop. Sure. We did an experimental three-block Um, I got 760 from my councilman, Mansfield Douglas, and from Public Works. We did three blocks as a test, and then when Mayor Purcell came in, we ended up doing the rest of the street, and, you know, 12 South emerged. We also rebranded it, 12 South Neighborhood Commercial District, just Mm -hmm. to give it a new, fresh image. And, you know, 25 years later, uh, this is what's happened.
0: Yeah, 25 years later... I can't afford to be in
1: that neighborhood. Well, that's a problem. (laughs) We didn't know that at the time. You know, We were thinking, gosh, we just have to uh, bring people back into the city and re-energize our neighborhood commercial districts. We didn't realize that Nashville would become its city.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's neat to hear that you were such a significant part of the kind of gentrification of that corridor because now, like you say, and, and like we all know, you come to Nashville, and if you're just visiting... 12 South is one of the three, four areas where you know you're going you're gonna to go. It's a destination location now for those who would come to our city for the first time. So that's really interesting to see and hear that you had such a an impactful part of that yeah. gentrification of that neighborhood. And
1: it's interesting to see it through today's lens versus where we were looking at it then. Right. You know, back then, again, trying to get people to come back and re-inhabit the neighborhoods and populate the neighborhood commercial districts now the conversation has really shifted to affordable living and how can we keep the people who are here in the city and help them to find affordable housing good places for maker spaces and Mm -hmm. merchants um, and the conversation is definitely more difficult
0: yeah yeah i remember when 12 south about the only reason I would go in there in the mid-90s was my mom would take me there for uh, to go to the Christian bookstore that was there, and it was kind of like, okay, make sure we lock the doors here, you know, but it's... Uh, that Which I hear that's under contract right now. I've heard, per se, similar <laughs> per things. Se. Yeah.
1: I'm not saying anything out loud. That's right.
0: Well, if uh, our listener hasn't gotten this yet, Mark Deutschman here is our urban residential expert. Uh, you, you, you have been on the ground selling homes for 30-plus years in Nashville. But really, at what point, Mark, did you kind of make the leap into commercial development? Obviously, uh, a residential community getting to a certain size becomes a different, different scope and at some point, that scope becomes a more of a commercial development. When did that occur? How did that occur? Tell us about core development. I'm going to backtrack
1: just a minute. Yeah. So I started Village in 1996, mm-hmm. and I was um, sort of influenced by a group called the Social Venture Network. And it was a group that was using business as a great social tool for change. And I wanted to shift the way real estate was practiced. So I started Village with two agents In Hillsborough Village and we set to number one change the way real estate was practiced but number two to work throughout the city in the ring neighborhoods to help what was happening in Hillsborough Village and later 12 South happened in Sylvan Park East Nashville Germantown etc with plans to go to the core when Nashville started thinking about redeveloping housing in the core Mm -hmm. and again we were residential real estate agents Um, we were helping people find homes we're finding people who might want to come back from Brentwood or Cool Springs or something like that and move back to town. And yet, there wasn't any multifamily residential housing at the time. There were no apartment buildings on the corridors. There mm-hmm. was no housing downtown. And so we developed a strategy to help think that through in the event that developers started wanting to develop that kind of mm-hmm. housing. And I studied Which in is very forward
0: thinking, by the way.
1: Yeah, I could see what was happening back in Vancouver, where I went frequently. And you know, I was talking to a guy named Bob Rennie who was selling many of the big developments downtown, and he was giving me insights. I studied with groups up in Chicago because they were starting to rebuild their core at the time. And it started happening, and, you know, I started listing projects um, like the Bristol on Broadway, 172 units, and then pretty soon after the Enclave in Hillsborough Village, and so on, listing projects throughout the town. But I was invited to come in and take a look at a building over in um, North Nashville. It was the old Wortham Bag Factory, Mm -hmm. and it was this big 400,000-square-foot heavy timber building that had been built in 1872, and it was vacant. Um, It had been bought by a developer who was somewhat underwater, um, and there was a development team looking to get our opinion on whether or not we could create some lofts or they could create some lofts and sell it. Yeah. And I took through, I probably had 30 or 40 agents at the time we walked through the building and looked at the nice dripping lead based paint and yeah. the <laughs> pigeons flying around. Right. And, but the pockmark floors and the exposed brick and the, you know, big beams in the ceiling. And we were really excited. And when they asked us if we could sell it, we said, yes, we can. Yeah, that's right. Cause you um, had the vision for it. What we, it could be. We, not only that, but we had been selling bungalows, in Hillsborough village and people were coming here from other places like New York City for instance and Mm -hmm. they were used to having these cool loft spaces and they'd come here looking for a loft and I would have to say how about a nice bungalow in Hillsborough village yeah good luck well that development team didn't come through but I became obsessed with that building and tried to figure out a vision to to get it done and um I convinced a lender to lend me six and a half million dollars to do a small section of the building 23 units uh-huh. which is sort of odd you know to take one piece one of the space of, and yeah and they uh, graciously gave me the loan with one caveat they said that we had to sell all the units in advance
0: you had to pre-sell we had every to pre-sell unit. them all huh
1: so i had my sales team we found all those lost buyers we sold every unit in advance and where the mill's loss was born yeah which is now a 351-unit project that anchors the section in, in Germantown. Right. But it wasn't what it was then. You know, there weren't any neighborhood services back in 2003 as we got that project started. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't have any housing downtown. People weren't used to the loft living. You know, you can look at it through the lens of Germantown as one of the most walkable interesting neighborhoods in our city today. Mm-hmm. But back then it was, you know, definitely pioneering um, to be a resident, so we got some really cool people.
0: Yeah, that that really set a benchmark for our city, I think, in adaptive reuse of older buildings to see how they could be successful. And, I, you know, that was one of the things for years we would mention, well, yeah, look at look at Worth & Lofts. Mm-hmm. You know, they did it. There's gotta be some da- demand. And and the fact that you did pre I'd be interested to know what kind of demand do you remember off the top of your head for those 23 units how long did it take you to really market and sell those units
1: i mean it was different and if you look at the first phase of Worthing it's different than any other phase because we brought in 23 creatives i mean probably 50 creatives to get 23 to buy mm-hmm. and let them we called them bays you know you'd look at a window and you'd go from front to back and a bay was 400 square feet yeah well you could get Two bays, three bays, four bays, you could stack the bays, you know, and so you had this weird <laughs> stacking process, but a really interesting configuration because everybody got to pick their own unit huh. and we designed around it. Wow. Uh, we didn't do that in later stages, it's not sure. that efficient. Um, however, you know, as the process went on, the city was interested in seeing that done, and my friend Phil Ryan, who was with MDHA, was now the executive director of MDHA. And Wortham was in the Phillips Jackson district, and they had um, something called—it was a redevelopment district. So they had something called tax increment financing. Mm. And when we got to, you know, phases four and five, 120 units and 100 units, we actually were able to use some of the tax increment financing to take care of some. There was, you know, plenty of environmental remediation that needed to mm-hmm. happen, and um, other things, and we were able to you know, finish a building that was a difficult job because the city had the right incentives. Now, in exchange for that, we sold 20% of the units to people who made, um, less than $35,000. Wow. And so we were able to sell units for incredible prices and get people started in home ownership And these are people who, you know, n- needed something at that price. I mean, we still need everything like that now. Yeah. Um, but um, we feel like we were able to get people on the path to home ownership, which I still believe is um, the American dream. You yeah, It's one of those things that
0: can help you build wealth over time. That's right. In terms of your core development group, tell us how you got into that. Was, was Worthen what inspired Core or did Core inspire Worthen? How did that work? We're then inspired village development. Uh-huh. That's okay. what we called it at first. At first.
1: And then um, we're invited to come downtown. There was a building right at Printer's Alley mm-hmm. called The Exchange and, and then the old Banner Building. We were invited to come downtown because they were going to tear that building down and turn it into a parking lot. Mm. And, um, you know, we are now developers. And instead of calling it village, it was a different kind of business. We called it Core Development Services. I took on partners, um... Aaron White and then mm-hmm. Hunter Connolly and we ended up moving through downtown and you know retrofit seven buildings um, mm. and did some piece you know piece of work downtown in that time.
0: Yeah. So with that said, you know, we do a lot of residential subdivision development. We also do core residential development. What makes an urban residential development successful or different than going out into the sticks and, you know, breaking off 100 acres and doing 200 lots subdivision. What's, in terms of the development of those two types of uh, different, and even in the urban core, there's different types of developments. You can do row townhouses, you could do stacked condos. What makes an urban residential development successful in your mind, and how does that all come together? Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure.
1: I think it's walkability It's a big deal, hmm. you know, creating the walkable neighborhood commercial access mm-hmm. or the promise of walkability, right. you know, because some of these are emerging neighborhoods and you can't build it all at one time. But if you build some residential density, then the retail will follow. Yeah. Retail so follows. So you start, start building housing, then a lot of times like downtown, we left the bases open and we either have art galleries or restaurants or other things mm-hmm. downtown Many of our communities today, like Wedgwood-Houston, we've done a series of projects, and when we started, it was really an underutilized uh, industrial neighborhood with very few services. But it was ripe for, you know, because of the walkability access, the proximity to downtown, the proximity to other neighborhood services, it was ripe to create the retail. And so if we could come in and sort of set the vision and, and begin to, you know, set the promise for community, set the promise for walkability the retail and, and frankly, other developers would follow, which is what's happening now.
0: Yeah. So the promise of walkability, uh, the accessibility of the neighborhood on foot, is one of the prime things that has to be there for a, a successful urban residential development. It's obviously more risky to go out into an unproven neighborhood and just go for that. Is that a tolerance that you've built up over time of saying, yeah, I can see this, I have the vision for this, I've seen, I saw 12 South when it was this, I see that here now. Is that something that you bring to this process now a lot more?
1: I think I started honing that that visioning right you know, from the very beginning with Hillsborough Village and realizing that there was a need to have a neighborhood commercial district and there is need for a neighborhood champion, somebody to help bring some vibrancy to the surrounding community. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, following up with 12 South and then, you know, creating multifamily residential developments and even helping other developers sell these projects. You could see how, again, how the residential was precursor to rooftops on the corridors, um, you know, heading over to Germantown, also adding the, you know, development to the formula sort of added a tool to the toolbox where you can come in and you know add the development but also have the marketing arm and then having the community relations with people who can help you know create what you want to see in a neighborhood that is maybe my my skill base yeah that's what i've been able to do so it's not a stretch to look you know if you're looking at what's happening in 12 south and then you go across and look at you know what's happening on Eighth Avenue South, it's, and then what's happening in downtown, and how it's expanding to SoBro. It was not such a big stretch to think that wedgwood Houston would need to be redeveloped. I mean, it's and then same thing. I mean, it's not a stretch to be working over in the Fairgrounds neighborhood and looking at the what's happening with Fairgrounds, the redevelopment with the Fair Park. You know what's happening up on Tech Hill what's happening along that corridor with the new, you know, immigrant communities. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a stretch to think that, that that's a viable zone. And then, you know, where do we go from
0: there? Yeah. In your book, The One Mile Radius, you mentioned different urban residential buildings that you've developed or sold over the years, such as the Worthern Mills Lofts, Alloy, Icon, and Velocity in the Gulch, and the Chesterfield, But what you really speak to a lot even more is not just those developments, but actually building community. And so talk about how real estate is defined, not just by the sticks and bricks of those buildings, but rather the groups of people that inhabit the communities. How do their desires for community with one another change the way you build, develop, create the actual buildings that they live in? Mm -hmm.
1: So I'm going to give a different example. You know, we were developing the Wertheren loss. We were developing projects downtown, and it's fairly obvious the potential walkability and impact in the greater community. You know, 12 South, you can see it too. You develop along 12 South, and you've got a built-in neighborhood commercial district. We started um, thinking about a different kind of project, and there's an architect. His name is Nick Dryden, and he Mm -hmm. had done... A very small project in germantown it was eight units and they were small cottages mm-hmm. and we liked the way they were formed i mean the, the cottages instead of facing the street the front porches faced each other and it was cool you know and so we took it and we did a couple of communities one is called weston station mm-hmm. in sylvan park and it's in a section of sylvan park that was probably the least formed section Mm -hmm. at the time it's hard to imagine that Mm -hmm. but you know it wasn't next to the community center or the golf course or anything it was in anyway we conceived a uh, project called weston station and it was 40 45 cottages uh with a couple of rows of townhomes but we did we built the community with um small little uh green spaces and and then front porches facing each other Mm -hmm. and it was actually remarkably attractive. Uh, people really liked the concept. People coming out of apartments, people coming even out of some of the new condos. You know, we're now starting to form families. And you'd get these young people and young couples that would come in and buy into the community. And generally, we like in that project, I think we sold to one family with a child. But it immediately became populated with tons of kids. Yeah. And they're right. all hanging out in the green space, getting to know each other. And now I've seen what's happened. In, you know, looking in the, the rearview mirror, where we've resold a number of those units, and we've helped people buy their next house. Mm-hmm. But what happened is that these people formed incredible friendships, like mm. a deep bond with the people who they grew their kids with. Mm-hmm. And it's different than what you're talking about—a suburban neighborhood where you drive out, pull into your two-car garage, and you, you never necessarily have to talk to anybody. This proximity created. Um, a built in community and yeah. um I love that. You yeah. Know, I love that, that happen. Yeah. And so we recreated it with Gale Park and Chesterfield. We've done that project in different ways over and over again in the city because it's um it's a nice formula. For yes yeah. enough urban density, usually in neighborhoods that are not quite as walkable yet, but you're building community, but still very urban so you can get the services.
0: I remember uh, the West End Station, when did that, that came out of the ground in 07, Something 06? Like that, yeah. That was, uh, and I mentioned this to you earlier, and you, you didn't even know, but I actually appraised that proposed development when it came through for the proposed construction. And I remember thinking, and you correct me if I'm wrong, it actually sits up against a railroad, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Actually, two railroads. Two
0: railroads, that's right. And I remember thinking at the time, this is crazy who's going to want to live next to a railroad in these small houses, but but you're right in that we did the phase one of that development. And then when we came back and did the phase two, I remember thinking that is wild because the absorption of that first phase was, it was immediate. Props to you for seeing that because that was uh, what I would consider a fairly high risk development when no one else was doing that. And it worked. And you're absolutely right that one of the reasons why it worked is it seemed like because there was such a human component to it, which to me is so fascinating about real estate in general, is that obviously we we as the appraisers step back and we go, oh, we have to give a market value, which means it's uh, that value, the seller is not motivated, the buyer is not motivated. And in reality, what we know is, everybody's motivated. It's a hard, you know, that's what drives the market to a degree is somebody saying, that's where I want to be. And yes, we're willing to pay that. And that closes, and then it becomes a comparable for us for the next one. And it doesn't
1: hurt. You know, we were able to to sell these properties at a very attainable price point, so it was entry-level housing a step above a condominium. And it also, from my experience, I lived on a railroad when I grew up when I was a kid, I lived mm-hmm. with my back door to a railroad, mm-hmm. and I always loved the trains. Yeah, and so the trains didn't bother me. You know, I say I prefer a train that comes through intermittently than, you know, living on an interstate, for Yeah, instance, that's right, a bunch you know? of
0: traffic yeah. right through the middle of the neighborhood. It's interesting because we had this interview on the books, uh, you know, six weeks ago. And last week, March 3rd, was the Nashville tornado that ripped through parts of our city, and uh, both you and I have talked about this a little bit before we got here, but I want to spend some time talking about it because I think that your uh, sense of that and what it's done to our city and where we're going to go from here is really valuable, Um, partly because you and I were both here in 1998 when the previous tornado hit, and we're at an interesting crossroads, I think, because if we're going to talk, obviously the tornado hit certain neighborhoods here in nashville and then kept traveling east and hit areas like mount juliet and lebanon and even into putnam county where cookville is and what i want to focus on is our nashville neighborhoods, since that's really what this is about and uh, three of the the main areas that i think are really you know hardest hit would be our east nashville around five points neighborhood, our Germantown neighborhood, and our North Nashville neighborhood. And I wanted to spend some time with you chatting about the differences in where these neighborhoods go from here. And we talked about what that's going to look like. But talk to me a little bit about your experience in the previous tornado. What came out of that? What happened there? And then in in terms of those three neighborhoods... How do we recover? How does that move forward?
1: Yeah, different, like 1998, um, I remember showing house, I think it was about 3 o'clock. I was out near Centennial Park, and mm-hmm. my mother called me, and she said, you better be careful, there's a tornado in your neighborhood. And I was like, I can see the dark clouds. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it ripped through Centennial Park, went down mm-hmm. Charlotte, you know, hit the Titans Stadium as it was being mm-hmm. built, um, and went through East Nashville and ravaged the neighborhood. You know, just like we're seeing today, there's incredible outpouring of um, support. So one thing a, a tornado does is it really creates community. Mm-hmm. And back then we were planting trees. I think 6,000 trees were um, devastated. Mm-hmm. We formed sort of new rules and regulations. And again, in 98, East Nashville wasn't the neighborhood it is today. It mm-hmm. didn't have the, the services it has today. There was something called Rudot. I can't remember what it stands for, but it started looking at the absentee landlords who were slumlords, and you know, forcing new regulations and actually putting design standards in for redevelopment. Mm-hmm. And so there was a, a very positive impact to some degree in 1998 about what happened today. If you look at it now, you know it's built up. You've got um, East Nashville is an interesting neighborhood because it has multiple neighborhood centers it's Mm -hmm. not just one Mm -hmm. but one neighborhood in particular the five points neighborhood just took the brunt of it yeah and it came right down sort of main street and um, Mm. woodland street and hit five points Um, my friend kim hawkins she's the chair of the urban land institute she's got hawkins she lost her offices Mm. Um, one of my teammates on the city living group her husband owns three restaurants four properties you know including Mm. the beyond the edge they all got hit trees in the roof yeah. you know another friend she's an architect her house had the had the roof of a grocery store in her front yard and mm. she's devastated so i was over there assessing another friend he's an architect his the buildings on both sides were destroyed he was sort of miraculously spared so it's wow. you know it's selective mm-hmm. i could see Right, you know, even from the very beginning, besides the gawkers, I could see the ener- the energy coming in from the neighborhood. Right. And we went back uh, and did sort of workforce and went up Holly Street, you know, all the mm-hmm. way out and started cleaning up and seeing the neighbors helping neighbors. Mm-hmm. I feel like it will rebound reasonably quickly. It's mm-hmm. it's a difficult thing. But I can feel like the neighborhood really supports the neighborhood commercial district. Um, it's a valuable um it's a valuable service and i think as many merchants as can will rebuild and um you know rise again to create the strength that east Nashville wants to be
0: yeah and do you remember in 1998 about how long that takes i mean it, it obviously is going to go faster for mm-hmm. some individual properties but getting back to some normalcy
1: uh, It's case to case i mean yeah again the weird thing is you can you know you go up holly street and it's a war zone you've got you know houses that will never be rebuilt Mm -hmm. and then some that got touched and will and so it's gonna there'll be rebuilding efforts there'll be demolition efforts you know there'll be you know historic overlay you know looking at new build and thing like that but then you have the neighbors three blocks away that weren't impacted at all Mm -hmm. and so you've just you've got a most of East Nashville didn't get touched. Right. You know, so you've got a strength of community that can help those who did get hurt mm-hmm. rebuild, plus mm-hmm. the outpouring from all the other neighborhoods.
0: And Germantown is very similar mm-hmm. to East Nashville, in that we would probably both consider it a more developed or redeveloped area that has seen much gentrification in the last few years, uh, last 10 to 20 years for sure. But let's talk for a moment about North Nashville, because North Nashville is historically one of our lower income neighborhoods. It's the kind of place where those who live there, I was looking at some demographics this morning of that area, and we have the ability to just kind of pull, hey, how many owner-occupied units, how many renter units, and that area is predominantly tenant-occupied. And... A lot of those homes being older, some of of the owners who have been there have been there for 40, 50 years. If somebody owns a home, sometimes it's been handed down and they don't have a mortgage on it. They also may not have insurance on it. So there's, from a standpoint, from the real estate standpoint, obviously you and I both love to see gentrification. But from a human standpoint, there's this entire community, which really feels like it's in a danger of being displaced because how do those landlords who own maybe low income housing recreate reconstruct those buildings and maintain the rents that would allow those people who've been there historically to to live there continuously into the future that's something that i'm really actually struggling with in in knowing what how does that work do you have any sense of moving forward for that community what happens there how does that play out well this i mean north
1: nashville you know chestnut hill is another very poor urban mm-hmm. neighborhood i think in a way one has to focus even without the tornado the tornado devastating but then even before that it's really important to focus on the owner users mm-hmm. the folks who have haven't owned their homes and And hopefully helping seniors to age in place in their communities, you know, give people the tools so that they can first retrofit for energy savings so that their costs come down, Um, maybe come in with organizations like Rebuilding Nashville Together Mm -hmm. and do some of the heavy uh, infrastructure work to help lift the houses up so that it becomes more valuable than it would as a teardown. And helping The seniors age in place because it's not just the seniors a lot of times you have seniors and then their kids and even their kids living together and if you can save the house for the senior and this this is even post tornado if you can look at it through the lens of let's make sure that we're helping those who can rebuild and can live here so you save as much of the fabric of community then you're going to help slow down the narrative there's better possibility of those people passing on the homes, like you said. It could, it might already be passed on, mm-hmm. but if you can help rebuild something and make it better, then you can pass it on. It reminds me of the Go Green days back in 2009, 10, 11, 12, where we were retrofitting houses for energy savings, mm-hmm. and we did do a study in Chestnut Hill with a guy named Jim Fraser, James Fraser. I think he works with NOAA to some degree right now. And he had found that um, many 300... You know, they did surveys of 300 people, and they found that the number one cost of um, these seniors was the energy. Hmm. They didn't have mortgages on their house, but the houses were energy sieves. And so wow. we ended up getting sort of figuring out a way to get grants to help retrofit 200 homes in wow. the neighborhood for energy savings to help people save in place. But we did go over to North Nashville at that time, and we got a grant from through TSU and the Department of Energy mm-hmm. to do some 50 deep retrofits in The north nashville neighborhoods we call it go green north nashville Um, and i know that rebuilding nashville together is up in bordeaux and they're they're focusing on a a section of the community to do the same you know building community pulling people together helping people realize this is a good thing for them and creating the trust in the base so that people recommend that their other neighbors do it i think that's the kind of thing that one could look at i don't know all the stats about to landlords but one one can look at how do you help those you can stay in place yeah the landlord's a difficult that is a difficult um conversation because if you've got a small mom and pop owner who owns a few pieces of property um you know what are they going to do are they going to rebuild the same thing again or would they just sell it to somebody else and let somebody else do what they're going to do mm-hmm. i'm not sure what the zoning and the um you know what is the overlay in the neighborhood right um, I'll refer a little bit back to um, with ULI we had a we have a group called the building healthy places mm-hmm. committee and we've been looking at the Charlotte corridor but then a little bit to the north of that looking at um, we were actually invited to do a study for the mayor's office under Mayor Barry mm-hmm. um, for transportation we are thinking about the transportation plan on Charlotte but we are also thinking about affordability and what does a transit node do and then what if you build walkable communities what would that do for affordable living there is a document that sort of maps out what that particular zone thought about as far as transportation walkability and affordable living and I'd almost like Wanna pull it out and have a look at it and see what was recommended there because it might apply to some degree to Jefferson Street and what's yeah. going
0: on around it. Yeah. Big picture what I hear you saying there is it's going to be a long haul, everyone's gonna be a case by case basis, it feels like, and there's also going to have to be a community effort.
1: Yeah, it's always good. I mean that's what happened in East Nashville. It was, you know, there was a community effort to create that dot program so that there were guidelines for rebuilding. Mm-hmm. Well, is that happening in north nashville is there a community plan that's developing around a tragedy so that the neighborhood at least has a template so that they can think about how they want to rebuild mm-hmm. and is that the same as uh, what it is now i'm not sure right can you refer back to the plan of nashville from the nashville civic design center mm-hmm. that did the charrettes over at the randy racy center you know where all the residents came out and said what do they want for the neighborhood mm-hmm. that's, that's back in 2005 but maybe it's still relevant i'm not sure
0: huh. Well, yeah, it's, a, it's not a wait and see. It's, it's a we will see, uh, but it's also a, uh, you know, I know for myself having many friends in those areas, uh, North Nashville, Germantown, and East Nashville the day of the tornado, I mean, I, I walked over there with a chainsaw and spent the next mm-hmm. eight hours, you know, just going. And so I do think that there is going to be a, a piece of that where everybody has to get involved at some point um, if they care about this city. And so I love, that's, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get you here. Obviously is was because I know that you care about this city in a deep way that is not just, Hey, what's the bottom line, but really and truly you care about our growth. And it's clear that you care about that long-term growth. Just,
1: I mean, you know, I know there's been an outpouring of financial help too, but there are groups of course, like hands on Nashville that, came out of the great flood you know they sort of lifted up to help mm-hmm. create volunteer groups and you can work with hands on nashville and find out how to give of your time and energy but there's groups like hands on nashville rebuilding nashville together the community foundation has efforts where you can give financially if you're not able to give your hands-on effort because not all of us can uh, run a chainsaw yeah that's and right getting out there and picking up things might not be the best for you too but yeah you know Open up your wallets and, yeah. and give because I think there's some great organizations that can support good work for those who can. That's right. And truthfully, I think you know the first effort is the pickup, cleanup. You know, And there's that that happens, and then it gets more professional from there. You know, you come in with the first round of community, and then you have to try to engage a more professional That's right. group to do some of the heavy lifting.
0: That's right. Late mm-hmm. in the week, last week, uh, it was if all you can do is pick up trash or you know, pick up sticks, you almost were standing around with nothing to do, which was a a sweet thing to see that that had happened so quickly. But then that that need for skilled laborers, well, we need guys who can put on new roofs. We need carpenters. You know, that's the kind of thing where mm-hmm. it's like, that's going to be a longer haul. And you're right. Not everybody can do that, but they they can help that effort mm-hmm. by looking up some of these. And we'll put those in some of our comments yeah, for the mean,
1: show. You know, the tree foundation you know there's places where you can come back in and plant trees you know i mm-hmm. mean that these kind of efforts will rally around a tragedy like this and hopefully you know create a burden community in the future
0: yeah you and that was in your book you said uh, i'm going to read here because i i love this at the heart of my work i create community at the core and work to create vibrancy in the city because i'm an environmentalist concerned with the planet The question there that I had after that was, what can Nashville do moving forward to be smart about growth and make sure there isn't massive, unthoughtful residential development? Mm -hmm. And it sounds like there's an opportunity there, like you're talking about, uh, just a bigger plan of of continuing to move in those neighborhoods in that way. Yeah, there's...
1: I think I've been saying it for a while, but I, I think that the cities are the most environmentally friendly place for humans to live. You know, if we continue to sprawl and take take over the farms and take over the streams and you mm-hmm. know it it has devastating potential for the planet it's better for humans to live in cities because we're more efficient we don't use as much energy we can be more thoughtful we can walk we can create ways that we're not using as much carbon so we're not heating the place up as much yeah um with that in mind it's interesting to note that people are moving back into cities across the globe at an an incredible rate at this time Mm -hmm. somewhere just north of 50 percent of people live in cities in the globe right now it's supposed to be 67 percent by 2050 wow so it's like a two and a half billion dollar two and a half billion people are moving back into cities during that time and that puts the pressure on what we do as a city you know thinking about smart growth and how do we you know solve for the workforce how do we solve for these multi-generational houses how do we help seniors age in place what do we do because density and growth and you know successful cities like our city has become create pressures for prices to rise and create pressure from the outside because people want to come in and invest in our city and it makes it ever more difficult to create affordable housing I would advocate, you know, we really should be thinking about our corridors, and we should really be thinking about our greenways. Mm. And I know we think about those things when we think about transportation and big transportation plans, but, you know, we have the opportunity to put tax increment financing on the corridors. The Mm -hmm. state has proved it. You know, it's been pushed through where you could actually create um, sort of master plan communities where you can give density bonuses for people who create affordable living, we can create our urban greenway system. And we are beginning to do, do a project called the City Central Greenway, which is a 22-mile loop around the city with spurs that will come through and touch our most urban of neighborhoods. Mm. Um, the greenway piece is one of my passions, Yeah. and it's been very important to me. We've built out nearly 100 miles of paved greenways now in Davidson County. Mm-hmm. And we started with the goal of being within two miles of every neighborhood in Nashville. We've done that. We shifted the goal to be within one mile of every neighborhood in Nashville. We're getting close to that. But we've revisited and said, you know, we really need to be within a half mile of every neighborhood in the urban core and preferably a quarter mile. Mm -hmm. So building greenways and then creating the connected green streets or at least the neighborways so that you connect the greenways to places where people might be able to ride a bike or walk safely without getting hit by a car to get to places like schools, get to places like jobs, get to places like um, parks Mm -hmm. um, is a really healthy thing for community. Fantastic examples around the country and around the world of people who've done that beforehand that we can bring in with smart planning to make that happen in our city so that we are a healthier city, Mm -hmm. we're overweight, so that we're able to access more parks. We need more parks in the urban core Mm -hmm. um, so that we, you know, can ride a bike uh, for a nice long stretch and feel safe, like they do in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. Um, And really, it's important to bring that to all neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So as we think about what we're doing is rebuilding, can we also rebuild with complete streets and create the access points um, so that it's really smart growth?
0: Yeah. And, you know, I was going to ask one of the questions being, you know, what are you most proud of? But you just answered that question. I mean, that's clearly something that you're passionate about. And it, it, it comes through when you talk about it so easily, comes right off your lips about, hey, this big picture vision moving forward for our urban residential living matters. It matters to think about it and what it's going li- to look like in 2050 here in Nashville. And so... It's fantastic to hear you uh, have that voice for it. Uh, I think we need more voices like that for our community, for our city. And so thankful that you have committed so much time and energy to that, to this point. If you haven't gotten Mark's book, The One Mile Radius, pick it up. It's a good read. It's a great read. It helps... uh, Give a great history. If you love real estate and the neighborhoods of Nashville, you'll love this book. It's really fascinating. So pick that up. We'll give a, a link to it in our comments. And Mark, this was great. I loved it. Thank you so much for spending time with me today.
1: Well, you're welcome. I, I want to make a plug. My wife launched a book called yeah. Lunch with Lucy, and uh, it's an incredible book. She's a very successful entrepreneur in the city um, that's doing so much, particularly for her people, the people who work with her and encouraging businesses to put their people first. And she just launched this week. It's in Parnassus and some of the other great bookstores. That's great. Um, So if you're picking up my copy, you can pick up hers too.
0: You can double down, (laughs) get the Deutschman duo book reveal. I love it. Uh, And thanks again, Mark. Really appreciate your time. This was so great. And I hope everything remains successful for you guys. And thanks very much, Zach. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Take care now. Thanks again for listening to the Providing Value Podcast. I would like to thank my guests for their time and effort in making this podcast possible. I'd also like to thank our producer, Jesse Montagna, and visual artist, Brian Freeman, for their help as well. Please take a quick minute to rate and review this show. Your opinion matters and helps spread this podcast to more people in the CRE community. I note here that I, Zach Doris, have no affiliations, partnerships, or business associations with today's guests. The views, thoughts, opinions, and outlooks expressed in this podcast by my guests belong solely to them, and they do not necessarily reflect my views, thoughts, and opinions, or that of my firm, the Z Doris Group. Thanks again for listening, and join us next time on the Providing Value Podcast.